0: Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan, as well as with support from Colo Pharmaceuticals and Avellino Labs.
1: Welcome to another uh, special COVID-19 episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm Dr. Gary Wertz, and um, you know, it's for me day twelve of of this experience. It feels like day eleven, four thousand, which obviously isn't even a number. But uh, I think we're all feeling cooped up, so it's really nice to be able to connect with everyone and um, really learn about what's going on in in the world of ophthalmology, especially as it uh, impacts our our business. Um, to that to that end, iTube.net has become a great resource for a lot of COVID-19 related. Uh, information. So if you have other interests or the chance to check that out, I think you'll find it very informative. Um, today, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington. Uh, we've had about $2 trillion worth of various stimulus bills that have been passed throughout the last week or so. It's kind of hard to wrap our, our heads around all the details um, that that uh, might affect us and our employees. So today we're going to have some special guests come on to discuss what's in those bills and what might be percolating in Washington, DC. Blake.
2: Thanks, Gary, and uh, I've been enjoying doing this with you. We're now on episode five of the COVID special for Off the Grid. Um, and uh, we've had a lot of participation. I see people kind of filing in. We're already well over 100 uh, participants. So thank you all for joining us. I want to uh, recommend that everyone, uh, we wanna keep this interactive. Uh, There's gonna be a presentation that we're gonna uh, uh, see, a a PowerPoint presentation, but certainly we can do Q&A during and afterwards as well. So make sure that you uh, put your comments there in the chat section and your questions, and Gary and I will do our best to get to them. Also wanna again thank, uh, thank our, our, uh, industry partners for the support, uh, Allergan as well as Al- Avelino Labs and Cala Pharmaceuticals. Thank you very much uh, for helping us uh, put this information out to everyone. So Gary, I want to uh, just kind of introduce or or, uh, say hello to our colleagues uh, from Kimball and Associates uh, that are on the call. Uh, There's been, as you mentioned, a lot of stuff going on on Capitol Hill. Um, So um, uh, today we have uh, uh, Kenny Keith and also Jeff Kimball of Kimball Associates. So Jeff, I thought I'd just kind of throw it over to you just to quickly kind of maybe introduce yourself and uh, your colleagues here and your firm.
3: Sure. Well, it's great to be with you guys today. Obviously, a lot's happened in the last six weeks in Washington. Uh, in a bipartisan way, believe it or not, uh, not something that you see uh, every day here. Uh, for those of you that I've not had an opportunity to meet, uh, I run uh, Kimball Associates. We are a 15-person, 50-client firm here in D.C. We specialize in coding coverage and reimbursement uh, as it relates to getting products paid for, as well as general government affairs. Uh, over the last three weeks, we've sort of moved into a different uh, type of work a little bit, Uh, largely because of the circumstances. We have a host of clients that are hopefully gonna be part of the ultimate uh, sort of fix to this. You have two problems in in this situation. Number one is clinical. You guys are obviously aware of that. Um, You've got testing, uh, which we can talk about here in a second. And then you've got actually vaccine development, which is not typically an easy process. Um, We've got clients in all of those areas, Um, Allergan, J&J, Avellino, Uh, Gilead, Cytospur, Takeda. Uh, So we're about as deep in this as you can possibly get. Uh, Here today also joining me is Keith Studdard and and Kenny Hodge, who will both be presenting uh, a deck uh, for you guys. The idea here is to keep this interactive. If you've got questions, uh, just type them in and uh, we'll try to answer them. But there is a PowerPoint that we'll be going through here today. Uh, At the end of the PowerPoint, there's also an opportunity to contact myself, Keith, or Kenny if you've got follow-up questions. Uh, This is serious matter. Uh, I do have to throw three things legally uh, to keep my lawyers happy. Number one, we are not an accounting firm. Uh, I'm not a CPA. I have no CPAs on staff. We are not financial advisors. Uh, All of you that have, uh, uh, you've got your own uh, resources to go hire, hopefully the best and brightest to take care of your financial situation. But we're going to be giving you uh, the best advice we can as we see it right now based on multiple packages that have moved through the House and Senate and been signed by the president. And lastly, we are not legal advisors. We we do have a law firm on staff. uh, I should say we have lawyers on staff, but we are not a law firm. uh, And anything we say here today, uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, But I don't want to have run into any legal issues myself. So I'll do the best I can uh, and try to keep this as interactive as I can as well we basically are firm believers in everything that we do is related to medical technology our entire practice is medical devices pharmaceuticals and biologics this was put up a couple weeks ago uh, and it was ran in a lot of the papers around the country ultimately a lot of the people on the phone here today your nursing team the first responding community and the scientists that we actually work for on a day-to-day basis are going to come up with a solution i absolutely 100 percent. Belief that the private sector is going to ultimately find a solution here, both on the testing side, which you can see from Abbott's announcement this morning, uh, but also uh, on the vaccine side. And it might come from a couple of smaller companies as well. Uh, We'll talk about some of the developments in that area uh, next. Next slide, please. So in terms of uh, my life story, bottom line is I've been a medical technology guy my entire career. Lots of lobbying, lots of activity in Washington for the last 26 years, uh, focusing on trying to get uh, products into the hands of physicians to do what you guys do on a day-to-day basis. And uh, it's been a real pleasure working with a lot of people in ophthalmology uh, over, the, over the last couple of decades. Next slide, please. Uh, Keith Studdard and Kenny Hodge, you'll hear, hear from in a moment. Uh, they've spent the better part of their careers in Washington Uh, and at Kimball & Associates. You'll hear from them in a minute. Uh, Even if you're a hardcore Trump advocate, or you're a huge fan of Bernie Sanders, or whatever your political stripes may be, uh, I think there's general recognition that the initial rollout from the executive branch about six weeks ago, five weeks ago, as the coronavirus was spreading, may not have been as quick uh, and accurate as a lot of people had hoped. In my belief, they have righted the ship, uh, and the creation of the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, being led by Vice President Mike Pence is real. The experience of the team around the Vice President for this particular set of activities has been, I think, extraordinary the last couple of weeks in particular. Uh, And there's a host of people, some of whom many of you may know uh, on this list, that have been uh, really showing their true colors. And there's a lot of experience here in the private sector. And ultimately, I think there's just gotta be recognition that this is a partnership between government at the municipal, state, and federal level, as well as with the private sector. And that is something that this administration, frankly, believes in very firmly. And I think a lot of us on the phone wanna see private sector solutions because ultimately the government does not invent anything. Uh, other than maybe debt and other other things. Um, But in terms of the solutions, they're going to be coming from the private sector and a lot of the labs uh, and R&D centers around the country and around the world. And we look forward to hopefully being part of that solution. Action items for you today, I would highly recommend following on Twitter these eight people or organizations. With these eight you are going to be able to follow on a minute by minute basis exactly what is happening across the government and the private sector. This is also bipartisan. Andy Slavitt is one of Joe Biden's main people. Uh, and the reason that I think that is important is to get a democratic perspective as well. Uh, you're gonna get a partisan perspective from certain people here, but generally uh, you know, this virus doesn't pick political stripes. We all need to be working together to find a common solution here. So this is my recommendation here today. The vaccine and treatment development has been really divided up into a lot of different companies. Some companies are putting multiple sort of shots on goal, so to speak. Uh, there are 39 vaccines currently in development, uh, 12 antivirals, and then a host of others that are you know, frankly looking at some old compounds, a couple of cell-based therapies. Uh, we're pretty excited about this. Uh, again, we've got a handful of companies in this arena. Uh, and frankly, You know, some of our sponsors here today, like Avellino uh, and J&J and others, are also developing in a wide variety of areas. Uh, J&J, you might have seen if you saw CNBC today, announced a billion-dollar endeavor with BARDA. That's uh, part of the Department of Defense uh, on a vaccine. That's very exciting. Gilead already out, uh, you know, doing their thing uh, on the vaccine side as well but also some smaller companies. Avelino, very exciting, uh, you know, small company, uh, state, local, uh, already very, very wired at the federal level as well. Uh, they know they've already got a testing uh, facility going on in California, thanks to uh, Eric Barnaby and Jim Mazo there. Um, so it does not necessarily just have to be large companies, small companies can play a key role as well. So Keith, I'm gonna hand it over to you here. Thank you, Jeff. Um... As Jeff mentioned, uh, we
4: saw a, a very rare, we've seen a very rare development over the uh, last three weeks in Washington, which is was swift action by members of Congress in a bipartisan manner. Um, I, I think it's important to note that that doesn't happen every day. And uh, you know, for those of us that are in the middle of this, it was heartening to see everybody come together um, despite everything else that's going on in, in an election year. Um, What you see here is what Congress has done to date. Uh, They've passed three very major pieces of legislation starting on March 6th and most recently with the CARES Act on uh, over the weekend. The CARES Act probably being the one uh, most most of you have heard and read about and which which in that case which is what we'll spend most of our time talking about today. Um, I do think it's important to note here that they're they're certainly not done. Uh, both the House and Senate have returned home to their congressional districts um, by the by the weekend. You had five members of the U.S. Senate Senate that had either tested positive uh, for the uh, COVID nineteen or had become in contact with someone who tested positive, and uh, for that reason, they're they're now back in back in their home states. But that certainly doesn't mean the work is stopped. The first bill that they passed back on March six was essentially an $8 billion pot of money to the Health and Human Services Department to further testing and uh, development of diagnostic tests and vaccine and uh, hopefully eventually curative therapies to um, treat the disease. Uh, the second bill that Congress did uh, immediately after that, which we commonly refer to in, inside the beltway is phase two, had to do um, mostly with uh, paid sick leave for small businesses. So businesses with under 500 employees, much like uh, many of your practices, uh, you're now required uh, to provide paid sick and family leave. And um, the flip side of that requirement will be uh, refundable tax credits um, that the government will then give to you to cover the expenses that you incur as a result of that. The CARES Act is really, is really the big the, the big daddy of, of all three of these. This is the $2 trillion package that um, really came together together the weekend before last, but took a took a week's worth of legislative wrangling to get passed through the House and Senate and signed into law. Um, and I think the best way to talk think about the CARES Act is five big buckets of action. Um, the first is additional money, as, as those of you who have the deck on the screen can see, additional money to the healthcare sector, and that's money back into HHS once again to further development of uh, diagnostic tests and vaccines and therapeutics, but also money to healthcare providers, hospitals um, who, are, who are losing, losing money um, throughout this, but also have have seen a high influx of patients as a result of those testing positive. Um, I think it's also worth noting in that bucket, there's some new money for telehealth services. And um, they've also delayed the Medicare sequester cuts for 2020, which uh, for those of you who who build Medicare, that's a 2% cut that we've we've had in place every year for about the last decade that will be waived as a result of this. The second big pot of money within the CARES Act has to do with um, social services, and I'll call that unemployment insurance, uh, money to states where they can um, uh, expend the capital directly, and then um, also waiving of student loans for a period of time as a result of uh, everything that's going on. Um, Then you had, uh, as you see on that third, third bullet, for those of you again with the deck, um, we'll call this the $500 billion, $500 billion bailout fund. This is targeted to airlines and other business, big businesses that are struggling uh, due, to the, due to the virus. And then I think the fourth and fifth bucket, probably, which are of most interest to, to those of you who are joining us today, first is um, the checks that will go out to... Uh, Uh, citizens around the country, up to $1,200 for those people making up to $75,000 a year. Couples up to $150,000 a year would receive double that, and then an additional $500 per child. Uh, And this is all going to be based on 2019 income. And then the last big bucket is a a program that they are standing up um, as of today, and, and we're still waiting for specific details from The Treasury Department own this and from the Small Business Administration, but this is going to be $350 billion in in loans to small businesses. Um, And we can go through that, I think on the next slide, we've got a a table here. So if you see in the first column, the SBA 7A relief loans, um, I think it's important to note that while the SBA, the Small Business Administration, is administering this, it will all be done through existing lenders. So you don't, you're not having to deal with, with going to the federal government, filling out forms, anything like that. This will all be done through local and national lenders and banks. Um, so you, to be eligible, you have to have fewer than 500 employees classified as a small business and in operation on February 15th of this year. Um, and by that, they mean having employees that were actually being paid on that date, which I'm sure most of you were. The maximum amount of a loan you might be able to get is up to $10 billion, and you can use those funds for payroll, mortgage and debt interest, rent and utilities. Um, No collateral required, no credit history required, and uh, the repayment method will be over the following 10 years. Um, And I I think this is probably, if we think about what Congress might do next, I would anticipate this program to be extended and funded to even higher le- levels than it already is today. Um, so if you think about the three bills, we've just talked about one, two, and three with CARES being phase three, we would be absolutely shocked if there was not a phase four, probably a phase five and six. And um, we, we expect the negotiations on what the, what the follow on bills look like to begin in earnest as early as this week uh, and probably see something out of Congress and probably in the next four to six weeks. Kenny, you want to take it from here?
5: Yeah, I'll, I'll pause here to remind everyone that uh, we are accepting questions, so if you have any questions on any of the legislative issues that Keith just mentioned, uh, please feel free to type them in. Um, in terms of what the administration has been up to, um, you know, there's been a large wave of waivers issued or emergency use authorizations issued by FDA, CDC, HHS, and many others. And this slide here is to provide a little bit of a picture of some of the things that FDA has done. You see there's been a flurry of activity. It started with a lot of um, actions around protecting the supply chain. Obviously, when the outbreak was mostly contained in China, And we had a lot of, we have a lot of active pharmaceutical ingredient and other supplies coming from China. There were lots of concerns about supply chain disruptions. And as you see, as you get more and more recent, FDA begins to step up, um, you know, different activities related to emergency use authorizations for diagnostics. And then more and more frequently now, uh, emergency use authorizations around personal protective equipment. So the agency uh, is continuing to try and expedite review for treatments, vaccines, therapeutics, provide flexibility around conducting clinical trials. There are talking about during virtual advisory committee meetings so that not only can the agency continue to uh, do the work that it was already having to do before the outbreak happened, but that it's also prioritizing anything related to the outbreak. Elective procedures. Um, There have been a lot of, you know, concerns about what to do is in terms of running your practice, right? And in March 19th, CDC issued the, what is now probably infamous advisory to only conduct urgent and emergent healthcare procedures without a whole lot of guidance around what the, that was. Since then, the AAO, as many of you may have seen, has actually published a list of what they consider and what they recommend to be urgent and emergent healthcare procedures. I urge you, if you haven't seen that, to go to that. Um, and, and learn more about what some of the AO's recommendations are. But I also want to point out that CDC in, and the federal government response in general has really been uh, coordinated in partnership with the states. And a lot of states have been given a lot of authority to issue regulations and put in place um, priorities around how they want to respond to the outbreak in their, in their area. So um, That includes individual state guidance around uh, emergent um, and urgent procedures and what an elective procedure entails. I encourage you to visit this link at the, the ASC association is actually publishing uh, daily, any updates about individual state activities around defining and providing guidance around uh, elective procedures or other stay at home orders that may uh, influence the ability for practices to, to do what you do on a daily basis.
1: Hey Kenny, can we yes. uh, just take a pause here for a second? We've got of a course. number of great questions that are coming in. Um, perhaps Keith, you might be uh, poised to answer some of these. So we're, we're just going to take a quick break from the uh, slide deck, and we'll answer some questions if that's okay. Um, Renetta Stone asked, with regard to the CARES Act, um, are we going to go through the details of the forgiveness criteria? Obviously. Um, you know, this is something that we don't really know much about with regard to being able to get a loan and having it forgiven. Uh, I think it's a totally new concept. So, Keith, uh, Jeff, Kenny, any any ideas on what the criteria will be um, for the forgiveness, or is that going to depend on what Mnuchin um, recommends?
3: Yeah, I think we're going to get a copy of that today. Uh, Keith, you want to chime in on that?
1: I think he's muted. Okay. Keith is.
3: Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yep.
4: Yep. yep. Um, the forgive that they will, they plan to allow from what what I understand and, and Kenny jump in here too, but uh, they plan to allow forgiveness, but not to exceed the amount of the whatever loan you were to take through the process.
5: Yeah. My understanding is it's, it's up to eight weeks of forgiveness and it is proportional to the amount of workers that you uh, fire. So, if you are forced to lay off employees, the the forgivable portion of your loan is intended to be an incentive for you to keep as many folks on as you're able to, knowing that you'll be able. Your the the maximum eligible amount of loan forgiveness will be directly related to
1: the amount of workers you're able to keep on. And Kenny, is that going to be like? Uh, dollar for dollar, so if you keep on high wage um, earners like your optometrists or other doctors, but the rest of the staff, you're a skeleton crew. Um, do you know if there's there's some way that how will they calculate that? Any any idea?
5: Um, I believe they look. There is a period in the bill in which they look at the payroll amount, and I believe it's tied to that February fifteenth date. And there are some specifications in the rule about. Um, maximum salary level that you're allowed to forgive. Um, again, this is where, I'll, I'll remind Jeff said, we're not a law firm, sure. and so you should just consult your, your attorneys and your accountants about the exact specifics there, but there are some specifications there.
2: Hey, Keith, um, you mentioned about uh, uh, you know not having to go for the federal government uh, to, to get these uh, relief programs and get these loans. You can use your existing lenders. There's a few questions about that. Uh, one from Daryl White asking, will only banks that now lend under SBA programs be involved in the relief program? Um, and then uh, Andy and Tom both have questions about venture-backed businesses or those that are sponsored by private equity. Are they eligible for SBA loans?
4: My, my, my thought on the uh, eligible lenders is no. Um, but they're obviously to lend under this 7A program, there are there are things lenders will have to do um, to to comply with what SBA is is doing here, but not having not having done business with the SBA before, I don't think should prevent you from being able to participate in this program this time around. And then Kenny, uh, I know has done a lot of uh, work related to the the venture and PE worlds uh, and how that that those calculations relate to this program. So I'll let him take that.
5: Yeah, so to, to clarify a couple, one, um, they do differentiate between private equity-backed and venture capital-backed companies. Uh, there were existing uh, Small Business Administration rules that still are in effect. They were not waived by CARES Act. While many of them were waived for these specific paycheck protection loans, Um, the rules around private equity and venture capital affiliation were not waived. In general, um, if you are a private equity backed firm, the rules state that you must add up the employee for, in terms of calculating number of employees, you need to add up the number of employees that are owned by all of the portfolio uh, owned by that private equity firm. For venture capital, it's strictly about ownership stake. Um, And there are specific rules there, especially it gets very tricky once you start wading into if there are multiple venture firms that are part of your ownership group. Uh, But in general, if you're largely venture backed, you should probably look into a little bit more in terms of uh, whether or not you're going to be eligible.
1: And one other question that's coming in from John Hovenessian. Uh, First is, is Blake wearing pants? So that's the first question.
2: Ever, John. I'm always wearing swim trunks. You know. That. Okay,
1: so that the answer is clearly no. The other question is, what about for um, what about for smaller practices that have less than fifty uh, less than fifty people? What what happens there?
5: Um, in terms of their eligibility for the loans,
1: correct? Because it seems like it's it's for more than fifty but less than five hundred employees. So. Have you guys got a sense on what those really small businesses might be able to be eligible for?
5: My understanding is they are eligible. Um, it's, it's, there is the statute clearly says the greater of 500 employees or for some narrow industries, there are exceptions for it to be larger than 500. Okay. Now Mnuchin is going to be putting out all of his guidance today and yeah. may provide some additional clarity, but, um, Again, some of the usual small business loan restrictions that were in place for uh, 7a loans uh, from the SBA prior to passage of CARES Act, this, these Paycheck Protection Loans are a little bit different. So the so the eligibility requirements, some have been waived and expanded, others have not. Okay.
4: And and Gary, um, to that point, I would add that the second the Phase Two bill that we talked about uh, briefly the uh, family and sick paid leave provisions do not apply to employers with less than 50 employees. So that's like a 50 to 500 employee threshold there.
1: Okay, well, we can always look for the guidance as well as it comes out to, to uh, figure out what's going on moving forward, so let's, uh, I guess we can go ahead and continue back on with the, uh, the presentation, the PowerPoint.
5: Yeah, so this map here is, again, just a kind of a uh, general sense so that you can see which states you should be looking at. Again, this was as of March 27th, uh, at least for the map, so uh, please go visit um, that ASC site, ASC Association site. You can see there they have every state's guidance listed, but if you're in one of these states that's in green or in blue, Um, there are some state regulations or laws in place uh, that have been, that are intended to govern elective procedures. There are also been, uh, there have also been a lot of regulations issued around uh, data use. Obviously, you may have seen today the administration requesting that hospital labs provide data to the administration about coronavirus tests and diagnosis. Um, The task force is really concerned about uh, being able to manage data and begin getting a much more clear picture around the actual prevalence of this disease right now based on the fact that um, you know many people are having struggles accessing tests we're only testing the very sick already that's changing we're getting more and more tests thanks again to folks like Avelino and others and so the government is going to be issuing more and more regulations around uh, breaking down Uh, data and privacy rules. So you're going to see potentially some waivers around HIPAA and other things that will increase the amount of data that is available. This was teed up in the phase three bill. Uh, So we should see additional guidance here where, um, you know, providers, hospitals, really everybody through the entire claims cycle could be called upon to help uh, provide data to the federal government to begin tracking prevalence of the disease uh, throughout the rest of the outbreak. And then these are just some more useful links. Jeff, I'm gonna stop here and let you kind of jump in. Sure,
3: so uh, again, everyone, uh, a couple things have happened even since we've been on this call. Number one, for those of you that have practiced in the state of Virginia or West Virginia or the District of Columbia, They've just uh, shut down everything in those three areas. Uh, I happen to be one of them, so I hope to get home soon. <laughs> um, but uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, that site will keep you updated, that ASC site, but you know, stay tuned on local news on the treasury regulations from Mnuchin. Those will be coming out this afternoon. So I was hopeful that they would be on this uh, call here this afternoon, but it's obviously not happened. Um, there's a n- number of uh, useful links here. Um, I think that when Gary asked us to participate in this a couple days ago, uh, he had asked, you know, hey, these guys are active. They're going to want to do their own research. Well, here you go. I gave you eight people to follow on Twitter, and here are your links to follow exactly what's happening for employees, the SBA, who's eligible with the IRS, some tax provisions, and a host of other things, NIH grants, and everything else. And obviously, CMS uh, side as well, unless you're a cash pay operation. Um, And this is not meant to be partisan. Uh, The Mitch McConnell site is actually very, very useful, um, though he's a Republican leader of the Senate. Um, But all of those links should help you uh, uh, navigate uh, the circumstances here. Gary, do you want to stop for any other questions? Uh, I'm happy to go through a political deck. I'll keep this to five minutes um, and can then be happy to answer any questions we've got we've got a couple
1: of questions here so okay. just in the spirit of being uh responsive yep. to the to the, the guests who are attending um alan brown has asked a good question how do surgeons retain their income since we make more than a hundred thousand um, dollars which seems to be the cap um and are, and are excluded from the cares act I and mean, how do we how do we pay ourselves during this time
3: yeah uh keith do you want to answer that
5: There's not really um, a lot being done to actually help offset the loss of revenue that providers are um, experiencing right now. I do know that a lot of your specialty societies, um, including AAO, but also other specialties within the house of medicine, orthopedics, um, plastics, whatever um, they are working on some provisions. I think that they're trying to get into phase four of this legislation that would be directed specifically for, um, providers in private practice or ASCs. So I would encourage you to reach out to them and let you know or and ask them to fill you in on what those efforts are and see if you can be of help in, in reaching out to your local congressmen and senators to let them know that this is something that's critical to the existence of your practice.
3: So if I could just chime in there, um, you, for those of you that have heard me speak at ACOS or ASCRS or any other uh, opportunities I've had to speak to the ophthalmology community. Uh, I've said for years, uh, you've got to know your members of Congress. you've got to know your senators. Well, now is the time. Uh, there is going to be another stimulus package, uh, probably in April, early May. there might be one even sooner, uh, and there might be one after that this summer that will all this will all be uh, you know decided here in the future. Uh, but it is really important right now that people uh, like Steve Slade, who's got a great relationship with Kevin Brady, as uh, the ranking Republican on the Ways and Means Committee, there's going to be a tax bill, probably, or some tax provisions, certainly. Um, that's a relationship that's going to be incredibly important. Jim Mazo, Tom Frenzy, um, others that have been very active politically in the community at, at large, uh, Steve Spears and, you know, Kathy Cohen at AAO. Everybody needs to come together after listening to the membership of the organizations and come up with a common uh, sort of handful of themes uh, to go to your lawmakers that sit on those key committees to present the case for what needs to be done. And financially, what is uh, politically reasonable, but also allows you to continue to practice. Um, Obviously, there's massive amounts of lost revenue uh, for for this month and certainly uh, in April. Uh, and if it gets beyond that, you know, it's unclear at this point what uh, what there is you can do. But the bottom line is now is the time to get politically active. And if you are a, don't violate any HIPAA rules, but if perhaps you have a patient that you know very well that's in an elected office and you've got a relationship with them, I would highly recommend having a conversation um, when, if and when appropriate or along uh, the lines that HIPAA allows. Um, so be careful with that. But Really, this is a critical time. One other thing I'll just mention is one of the members in the Senate that has actually got COV-19 is Rand Paul, who's an ophthalmologist, confirmed case. Uh, never has that relationship and his background in medicine been more important than it is today to all of you that are on the phone and practice in this arena. Uh, so those, those of you know Dr. Paul, now's the time. You went yeah. to med school with him, you're a med school roommate, now's the time. Yeah, he's hey, Jeff, actually my uh, senator
1: uh, in, in Kentucky, come. so, yeah, understand that. Jeff, uh, uh, Greg Parker
2: says, if you accept money from the Phase Two SBA economic injury disaster bucket, is that amount deducted from what you're eligible for for the Phase Three CARES legislation?
3: <laughs> uh, I'm going to defer that one as well. Kenny or Keith? <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm not sure. I read I, I'm,
5: I'm – I have reasonable certainty that you are still eligible for a paycheck protection loan if you received an economic uh, disaster loan prior to passage of the CARES Act. So I don't know whether the total amount is deducted if you're eligible amount or not. That's, that's a trickier question that I don't know the answer to, but you should still be eligible in some
1: form. And then uh, Leonard Blay asked a question, I think is interesting because a lot of us are in this situation right now, provided we already furloughed employees and then we'll rehire in eight weeks, can we still qualify for loan forgiveness? So I guess the idea is, you know, loan forgiveness is to keep people on the payroll. If we have people off payroll and are, you know, sort of putting them back on, how does that impact it?
4: I, I believe it goes back to that February 15th date. Um, which is when they're, your the date they're using to determine what your payroll was and what your, your outlays were. Um, But I don't know, Kenny, if you know any more about that.
5: No, I think we'll see guidance on that from Nuchen soon.
1: Gotcha. You know, again, we're, we're all sort of shooting from the hip right now. I apologize. We're going to have more guidance Um, and as it comes uh, we'll try to make sure that on itube.net we have some guidance um, as soon as we have it available, um, that can go along with this episode. So if there's anything that we need to clarify or to uh, do some research on, we'll try to get some direct answers to those questions uh, linked uh, to this on itube.net. Um, perhaps it'd be a good time, Jeff, for you to uh, continue to move, move this conversation forward to see, uh, to see what else you have for us.
3: Sure. I'll, I'll keep this quick. This is a political section. For those of you that are not interested, I completely understand So uh, COVID-19, you know, has already affected politics in a very significant way and I'll talk about that here in a second. The first is you have 10 states that have already moved their primaries uh, to later this summer. That's a really significant development uh, that bodes very well for Joe Biden uh, because uh, there's really no opportunity to raise money right now in politics other than online. That's much harder than in person. This also affects Donald Trump because he likes big events, big and bold all over the country in arenas and NASCAR events and rock concerts and that kind of stuff. Uh, And he can't do that right now. Uh, He cannot go around the country and campaign the way he likes to do it. So this has affected both camps. The next thing is you've got the Republican convention and Democratic convention. And here the Republicans are probably at a slight advantage only in that their convention is after the Democratic convention. Uh, The party in power, always goes second uh, for the conventions, at least that's traditionally how it's been done. And the Democrats have got Milwaukee, July 13th through 16. And then the Republicans in Charlotte, August 24 to 27. These are major events. And I would be um, uh, watching this very, very carefully. I think Donald Trump not having this would be an absolute shock. uh, And we'll just have to see what happens, but obviously, the health of citizens and attendees needs to be paramount here, uh, but those are those are real circumstances. So this bodes well for Biden in the short term on the primary, uh, and I do think that Biden will end up being the nominee. And me, he, he may end up, you know, picking up his uh, vice presidential nominee uh, on the, to run in the ticket with him prior to the convention. Well, prior, like in the next month or two, or maybe even sooner, uh, just to end this with uh, Sanders. But we'll we'll just have to see. Uh, yep. Hey, it, uh, someone asked,
1: is there a possibility that the election could be postponed? Do you see that happening, at least potentially?
3: You know, uh, <laughs> I think there's already been speculation about it, and I'm not sure the technology is there yet from a fraud standpoint, especially what happened in 2016, that we are going to be able to, to do something like that. A uh, lot of discussion about this in the primaries already. You guys saw what happened in Iowa on the Democratic side and that mess. Um, the caucus system. So I cannot imagine that today, but we've never been through something like this before. So hard hard to predict at this point. 18 seats need to change hands for the Republicans to take the House today. I don't see that. Um, but a lot of that depends upon the popularity of the president. This is a president who will never be you know, at a 60% or 70% or up to 90%, which is what H.W. Bush was during the uh, first Iraq War, uh, as that ended in uh, February of, of 1992, uh, and so you just have to recognize that he's, he's people have got their opinions of him. A lot of people people lie to pollsters about what those opinions are, uh, as we've discussed at various uh, events. Uh, but ultimately, I don't see today the Republicans taking the House because they've not been able to raise the money or recruit the candidates. I think their time to take the House back is in 2022. One really significant thing that's that we're dealing with right now is that there are a lot of people with a great deal of experience in healthcare and medical technology and vaccines and diagnostics and everything else we've been talking about here today that are retiring from the house and the senate and it's a really significant development the couple the chairman of the of the key committees on fda issues cms issues there's a handful of people uh and it's a it's a significant development it's not a positive in this environment when you need to have this experience, uh, these seasoned veterans that can sort of lead during these circumstances. Some are looking for a promotion and move from the House and move up to the Senate, but the vast majority of these folks are retiring and getting out of politics, which is not necessarily good at this point in time. So uh, we hope that some of the physicians in the House and Senate really become key spokespersons uh, on the issue for the House and Senate, uh, but that hasn't developed uh, thus far. Uh, gubernatorial elections there's a handful coming up uh, this fall and if you really want to see what's happening in various states and whether or not Republicans and Democrats come back and get reelected it's watching what happens between now and election day in the states the reason part of the reason for that is when you just declare a national disaster in the United States it ultimately disperses in this case 40 billion quickly and then a lot following to FEMA, and then FEMA cuts checks to all the states around the country, and then the governors, working with the FEMA directors in each of the 50 states as well as the territories, and I live in one in the District of Columbia. Immediately, that money is dispersed, and then you find out whether or not your governor and your FEMA director know what the what on earth they're doing. You want a case study? Of that look at what happened in Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, excuse me, Mississippi and Florida during a, during a last couple hurricanes down there. Compare that to Louisiana uh, during Katrina. And you get an idea real quick of whether or not you get a good governor or you don't. And so it really, really has an immediate impact. And I'll just leave it at that. And we'll see who comes back uh, uh, and gets reelected this fall based on what happens here in the next six months. United States Senate, Republicans control the Senate 53 to 47. Uh, Today, I think Republicans still will control the Senate, but they may lose one, potentially two. Uh, but again, this depends upon the the president. I'll just talk a little bit about presidential approval ratings here. Uh, Ultimately, if Trump is reelected, a couple of Republicans will probably survive on this list, and if he doesn't, a couple won't. I'm particularly looking at Arizona and Colorado there and potentially North Carolina. Uh, Those are all vulnerable seats right now for Republicans that may go the wrong way. Uh, if you're a Republican, or may go the right way if you're a Democrat. And we'll just have to see what happens there based on, frankly, the election day. Uh, So Biden's going to be the nominee. And uh, there really is a limited opportunity for Sanders to ultimately prevail. And so a deal needs to be cut. And one deal that might be getting cut, which affects everybody on the phone, is Bernie Sanders is what it could potentially chair the Senate Health Committee if the Republicans lose the Senate on election day. Is that enough of a consolation prize? We'll see. That's a discussion between Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, and others if Vice, if, if Vice President Biden ends up being the president of the United States. A lot has to happen between now and then, but he will be offered multiple opportunities to go into the administration probably in different areas, maybe the Department of Labor or HUD or something else. Or may he maybe he just calls it quits and says, I want to be ambassador to New Zealand or Argentina, or something uh, that's, uh, you know, he can go off into the uh, limelight and enjoy the rest of his life and his grandkids. Uh, So we'll just have to see, but a deal will have to be cut uh, at some point uh, before uh, you end up with a brokered convention, which Sanders is talking about, which I just simply don't think he can get there, uh, because I don't think the money's going to be there for him. I'm not going to go through all of Joe Biden's healthcare positions, but it's important to pay attention to this stuff. Um, Maybe not today, another, another time. I've been asked to put together kind of what a Biden cabinet will look like. So I'm going to put a few names out there. John Kerry is interested in returning. Michael Bloomberg. has a lot of different opportunities to probably go into the administration, maybe even Secretary of Treasury. Sally Yates, who uh, left the Department of Justice uh, in a very ugly fashion with uh, President Trump uh, with a series of tweets. Could be an AG coming back. Elizabeth Warren, we'll just have to see where she ends up if she wants a deal to be cut. She's older than a lot of people realize, and maybe she wants to call it quits, or maybe not. We'll just have to see. Uh, And then you've got a series of other people here who would be considered for cabinet positions. I see uh, Sylvia Burwell uh, and or Andy Slavitt likely being HHS secretaries, uh, and we'll just have to see where it goes from there. Approval ratings. These are very hard to, uh, to sort of swallow this day and age because of the lack of home phone numbers and young people just not telling the truth. Um, <laughs> I guess that doesn't include me anymore. Um, but Trump's approval rating right now has been ticking up steadily over the last couple of weeks. He was at 43% two weeks ago. He's at 49 now. My guess is by the end of next week or the week after, as you start seeing the testing uh, happening at the state level, increasing at a really, really pro- you know high percentage, you're going to probably get president up in the low 50s. I don't think you're going to get much beyond that, but he'll probably stabilize there. And then as the campaign gets harder, harder hitting, as you get closer and closer to the election, it'll start dropping back down to the mid 40s where he was you know, before uh, the virus circumstance. Ultimately, it's important to recognize that in the list election, 80,000 voters in three states ultimately elected Donald Trump president. And those are the three states that are gonna get the most amount of money during the next presidential campaign. If anybody is living in the state of Michigan, I would predict today that 250 to 300 million dollars gets spent in the state of Michigan between about June 30th and election day. Because without Michigan it becomes a much more difficult electoral college for the president to win re-election. I think Wisconsin is going to be a Donald Trump state again, but Michigan is going to be battle royale and with Biden the nominee, Pennsylvania becomes harder and harder for Republicans to get because if you're a senator from Delaware you have to buy the Pennsylvania media market around Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of people in Pennsylvania and the Eastern side that definitely know Joe Biden. Uh, And so he's a very very well known, I think it's gonna be tough for President Trump to uh, hold on to Pennsylvania. So with that, happy to take any questions and if not, it's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, uh, I think um, Kenny had uh, some additional information that he wanted to share just to clarify um, some of the phase two loan stuff. So uh, go ahead, Kenny.
5: Yeah, so I was able to dig in a little more on a previous question related to disaster loan eligibility affecting your eligibility for a paycheck protection loan. Um, It does look like if you received a disaster loan after January 31st, 2020 as part of phase two, You can still get a paycheck protection loan, but you would have to refinance your phase two loan into a paycheck protection loan. There are differences between the uses that you can use for a paycheck protection loan and a disaster loan. So as long, you can't receive money from both programs for the same purposes, but if you can use them for different purposes or refinance your phase two loan into the paycheck protection loan, you can do that. Now obviously that would mean that your loan eligible amount is still $10 million under both. So if you did have a, or under a paycheck protection loan, the limit is 10 million. So if you refinanced your disaster loan into a paycheck protection loan, that would be part of that 10 million. Hopefully that clarifies some of that.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: It's also good. It's also good to kind of mention, Gary, that, that a lot of this, a lot of this stuff, uh, sort of the granular detail about SBA and furlough and, and all this stuff, a lot of that's going to be covered tomorrow as well. Uh, On our off the grid, we have uh, uh, Bruce Maller from BSM Consulting and Matt Jensen from Vance Thompson Vision. They're going to talk to us about sort of how we can get out of this, our organizations and clinics can get out of this from sort of an administrative and consulting standpoint. So a lot of these uh, questions that I'm seeing here about FMLA and sick leave and all that, I I bet you Bruce and them can also speak to that as well. That's tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central.
1: Exactly. And uh, one thing I might ask uh, Jeff, because you mentioned this earlier about advocacy. You know, I think a lot of us are are antsy. We're, we're at home. We don't have a whole lot to do. Um, it's, it's you know, we have highly effective people who are sitting on the sidelines. And I would love to figure out a way for us to, um, you know, harness that energy for something positive, like um, increasing our, you know, reimbursement or increasing our flexibility potentially to do, for example, uh, immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery without the, uh, you know, yeah. without... The penalties. What should we be doing uh, to collectively? And can you point us to a single spot uh, that yeah. would help us sort of channel this
3: energy in the right direction? Yeah, I, I mean, so the t- two, two parts to that. Uh, number one, you've got to let AAO, if you are members of AAO or ASCRS, you've got to go to their government affairs and coding policy people and let them know your opinion on these matters. Very, very important. So it's Nancy McCann and Steve Spears at ASCRS, it's Rebecca Heider and Kathy Cohen and her team at AAO. Um, And we'd be, by the way, be happy to send that information back to you, you, Gary, uh, for who who people should contact. The second is, uh, you know, it's incredibly important to be on those committees of those organizations as well. I understand they're bureaucratic. I understand that you may not have time, but you know what? You're not practicing for the next month whether you like it or not. And now's the time. Uh, your community needs it, your patients need it, and without this, there is no input. Or you're gonna have somebody down the street who really doesn't know what they're doing, it's not a KOL, it's not really that involved, or maybe semi-retired, and they're not as active as you can be. And they also don't have patients that are members of Congress anymore, probably. Well, you guys can make a real difference right now. If those companies like Avellino and J&J are stepping up, you guys should too. And I really encourage this, I I know I speak a lot, there's a lot of you are friends of mine, Uh, you've been uh, pleasant to sit on those FDA panels because I've harassed you into it, thank you for that. But without those people that are contributing that time, guess what, you end up with secondary technology and we don't want that, your patients don't deserve it, you guys don't train secondary technology, you want the stuff that you were training on, Um, that's part of this. The other part is the political side, which is, the working with uh, folks in the administration, which we do on a day-to-day basis, but it's working through your trades. And bottom line is the deck that we just sent you has got my information, Keith's information, Kenny's information. If you've got questions about this stuff, ping us. We will direct you and your energy. Uh, I cannot answer Family Medical Leave Act questions, but, but they're in, in your financial situation, I, that's not me. Um, you got others others for that, but I can absolutely direct you the key folks in administration, CMS, you know, CMS, FDA, etc.
1: So we will uh, be able to have that slide deck, and we can put that on the i 2net uh, yep. site, correct?
3: Yeah. And we'll, what we'll do is we'll add a slide of who to contact with those two organizations. Um, so I've got one last slide there, which is a picture of the USS Comfort uh, landing in New York City uh, today. If you want to bring that last slide up um, with the uh, you know the Statue of Liberty in the back in the background. I just want to just end on one positive note here, which is, hey, we're going to get through this. Um, the people on this phone call uh, and the folks participating, you know, listen, we've been through a lot as a country for the last couple hundred years. We've survived a lot of stuff and we're going to survive this one. Uh, so I end, end with, with that. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Um, You know, as ophthalmologists, we know medicine, but we obviously have to rely on experts to give us some opinions and perspectives um, outside of our realm. And I really have found all the information that you've shared today extremely um, informative and helpful. And uh, I know that as we take further steps, we'll continue to, uh, to disperse the information as we get it. Blake, any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, just echo that. Thanks, Jeff and Keith and Kenny. And uh, again, for everybody listening, just to remind you, again, we have a show tomorrow uh, with Bruce and Matt Jensen. And then later in the week, we're speaking with two ophthalmologists in London who have actually been called back to the front lines to to, to take care of patients uh, with COVID. So we've talked about that, Gary, you know, do we potentially, are we going to get called back into the hospitals to run ventilators? And that's happening in London right now, and uh, we were able to track down two such uh, ophthalmologists that are going to come on the show with us. Uh, it's looking like Friday sometime. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you so much uh, to Jeff and, and everybody at, uh, at Kimball. Thanks
1: for the yeah. opportunity. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of our friends um, who have tuned in. I've been scrolling through and seeing your names. It, it warms my heart just seeing your names here. Um, so many friends that uh, are, are watching right now. And also thanks to uh, David Cox and BMC and the whole team for producing this. We really appreciate it, you all. Uh, until next time, take care. Gary, Gary, can you actually play that guitar? Oh, I,
3: I can if you want. Maybe, maybe another time. You we'll should sing something for us.
0: All right. Sounds good, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan, as well as with support from Colla Pharmaceuticals and Avellino Labs. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic health care professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing and listening to this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications, LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. Any information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this webcast podcast are for general information only. Reliance on any information provided by this webcast podcast BMC's employees or medical professionals presenting content for this webcast podcast is solely at your own risk and should not be considered as medical or professional advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned in this webcast podcast and information from this webcast podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. No reproduction, rebroadcasting, or editing of this webcast podcast may be made without written permission of BMC. Inquiries should be directed to Adam Kravchak, Esquire, at adam.bmctoday.com. BMC expressly declaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this webcast podcast or the information, opinions, and consent presented in this webcast podcast.